This week's episode is sponsored by Boost. In today's world, students have to keep up with more. More assignments, more demands, more to remember. That's why schools love Boost. It's an outcomes-driven notification app that connects securely to Canvas to give students due date reminders, personalized nudges, and positive feedback straight to their phones. Boost is proven to help students earn higher grades and pass more classes. Best of all, it's completely free and requires no training for teachers or staff. Visit www.boost.education to learn more. A five-year-old boy so frustrated with digital learning, he put his head down and started crying. That clip is from a local TV news report in Atlanta. This was from early in the pandemic, the summer of 2020. This photo of a Coweta County kindergartner went viral because so many families are feeling the same way. The photograph this news anchor is talking about, it shows a kid sitting in a small desk in a family's kitchen. He's facing a laptop computer, holding a pencil in one hand, hovering over a school assignment. And with his other hand, he's pulling up the neck of his T-shirt to wipe tears away from his eyes. The image quickly became a symbol for what many parents and educators saw firsthand at this time of disruption from COVID-19 and how tough the emergency remote learning has been on kids. There's a Harvard University research report that I think captures the stakes of this image. It says, quote, Although children have largely been spared the direct health consequences of the coronavirus disease 2019, there is increasing concern about the pandemic's influence on other aspects of child health and development, unquote. It turns out the Harvard researchers who wrote that have a unique window into how young students are faring during pandemic schooling. They're working on a research project called the Early Learning Study at Harvard, where they're following a group of a couple thousand families in Massachusetts. It's one of those longitudinal studies where researchers keep going back to the same carefully chosen participants to ask questions and track changes over time. At the start of the study a couple years ago, the kids were three and four years old. Now I think they're six or seven. And the work is yielding a clearer sense of what's happening to children as they shift back and forth between in-person classrooms and remote learning. And as they keep finding themselves in those kitchen nooks, staring at a laptop for their school. Just this month, those Harvard researchers published their latest findings from the study. In an article in the prestigious JAMA Pediatrics Journal, that stands for the Journal of the American Medical Association, the article's title, School Learning Format and Children's Behavioral Health During the COVID-19 Pandemic. So what did they find about the interplay between learning formats and child behavior? Today, we're digging into that question. And a slight spoiler alert, there are plenty of meltdowns like the one from that viral photograph. Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young, a reporter and an editor here at Ed Surge. Our guests today are two of the researchers working on the early learning study at Harvard. First is Stephanie Jones, a professor of Early Childhood Development at Harvard's Graduate School of Education. Hi, great to be here. And Emily Hanno, a postdoctoral researcher at the school. Yeah, thank you for having us, Jeff. Naturally, meltdowns are not the only thing these researchers are interested in. They have many broader goals for understanding what works in early childhood education. I started by asking Emily Hanno about their most recent finding. Specifically, 
What is it they ask parents about their kids' behavior during this time? Our team at the Zantz Early Education Initiative at the Harvard Graduate School of Education has been following a, a group of families and children from across Massachusetts since 2017. And when the pandemic hit, we were really interested in understanding what this has all meant for children and families. In spring 2021, we surveyed a group of these parents monthly. So we surveyed them in January, February, March, and April. And we asked them at each time point about their children's learning format, so whether they were in remote, hybrid, or in-person learning. And we also asked them to report on their children's behavioral health using several measures. So we asked them to just report overall on how their children's behavior was compared to their typical behavior. We also asked them to report whether they had noticed any maladaptive behavioral changes. So for example, had they noticed that their child was having trouble sleeping or exhibiting more aggressive behaviors or more temper tantrums. And third, we asked them a clinical screener called the Behavioral Rating and Executive Functioning Scale, the BRIEF, uh, that captures their maladaptive behaviors. So asking them the frequency of certain behaviors that, ex that are associated with self-regulation. So things like, are you having trouble putting brakes on at home? Um, so that was our approach to ask them repeatedly over time about these different behavioral aspects. Stephanie, you wanted to, to jump in here. Only, only to uh, completely support and endorse everything that Emily just shared and to put it into a bit of a bigger context, which is we've been doing this study, as Emily said, uh, since 2017 uh, with this very large sample. We began with uh, children when they were three and four years old. And we followed them since then. And we were right in the middle of our data collection when everything shut down. And we thought, here we have this established study. This is a chance to learn something quite specific about families' experiences during the pandemic and then share that information back with the world. I, I, I mean, it's so fascinating that you... Before COVID set all this up, this was not to study a COVID response or pandemic and yet, or, you know, to study this emergency learning moment, but here you are able to, you had the instrumentation going, so to speak. And so um, what did you find? Um, maybe start with Emily. You allude to the fact that we had this pre-COVID data and this during COVID data. So I'm going to back up and just say that was one of our first questions. Uh, and we published a separate study that I'd be happy to send you afterwards where we looked at did children's behavioral health change immediately in spring 2020 as compared to everything we knew about them from the two years prior. And we also looked at household dynamics. And unsurprisingly, exactly what you'd expect, we saw that families were reporting having greater mental health challenges at home, uh, greater household chaos, more parenting stress, and more parent-child relationship conflict. And all of this coincided with increases in children's externalizing behaviors uh, and challenges with self-regulation. And so this work was building on that, trying to understand variation and changes and how changes in children's behavioral health might coincide with some of the educational instability that we know that many children and families have faced. And so what we found with this data set in spring 2021, where we focused a small subset of, of this 3000 sample, was that children's behaviors were worse when they were in remote learning as compared to when they were in other learning formats. I wanna step in here just to emphasize this point. Children's behaviors were worse during distance learning than when children were in traditional classrooms. 
We'll get back to this point in a minute. And what's really powerful about our approach is as opposed to comparing across children, so comparing children who are just in remote learning as compared to children who are in in-person learning, we're comparing child A when they were in remote learning to child A when they were in in-person learning. And so this really gets to the heart of some of the challenges we see with understanding the consequences of educational instability, uh, where there's a lot of selection issues with who is participating in remote learning versus in-person learning. And of course, it doesn't solve all of them, and I'm happy to get more into that in a second. But what this is really showing is that children's behaviors are shifting in systematic ways as they navigate educational uncertainty. Um, and it's not necessarily that learning on the screen itself is causing these behavioral challenges, but all that that represents, including the stress for families, the stress for children of the unpredictability of learning routines, as well as the broader public health conditions that normally necessitate remote learning, are playing out in what families are seeing at home. I wanted to go back to that finding, and I really appreciate all the, the context, is so this behavior was in the sample of, you know, looking at child A before remote and then during remote, there was a difference. And say a little bit more about, you know, paint the picture of what the difference you saw was um, as as you measure behavior. Um, if, you're if you're trying to put this, this view in your head, like, what does this look like in a young child at home? Um, this looks like an increase in sort of basic aggressive behaviors, more temper tantrums, more falling apart. Like dysregulation is when kids are falling apart, their inhibition is reduced and they have trouble sort of managing their own behavior and their emotions. They're really labile. They might be quicker to a negative reaction or quicker to falling apart and, you know, having a kind of breakdown just as adults, of course, as we know, were during this time. So, so it's, it's interesting because we have heard from some sectors about how kids have done academically, right? What happened to their academic outcomes when we are in remote versus hybrid versus in-person? And, and what are the kinds of, if you want to use that language, learning losses that we can document? This work is really about the whole child. So what are the other things that are happening to young kids and certainly to families that contribute to how kids do in school, that contribute to mental health and well-being of everybody in the family system. And so, as Emily suggested, we've been really thinking carefully about how can we learn more about this side of child development, this kind of component that is really about how they are relating to others, how they feel in their environment, and what their behaviors look like. Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting. It seems like it seems like based on what you're saying, both of you, that it's not necessarily to say to try to prove even either way whether online learning kind of leads to this. The question is how it's this broader picture, something a, a broader about um, the impacts uh, on the on children through all this disruption. Is that is that right? We're definitely thinking about how. Uh, the lack of predictability and stability that comes with all of these shifts to educational experiences during the pandemic contribute to children's well-being. And thinking then about how we can support families 
at home who are navigating this instability, but also helping teachers when they have children coming back from a short period of remote learning. What does it mean? I think Stephanie alluded to this, that there is a pressure to address learning loss. But if you are having children who are confronting some of the more fundamental challenges of the pandemic and all that it's meant for many of us, uh, jumping straight into pushing academic content might not be as as effective as we think it it will be. You could almost think about some of these findings as sort of a signal, you know, it's like a little bit of a window into the kinds of strain that families experience during times of remote learning and all of the kind of, all of the other stuff that coincides with what uh, necessitates remote learning. And so, so in a way, it just gives you a window into a whole system of how families and young children are doing during this particular time. And it doesn't really give you a definitive answer about is the screen itself the cause of this particular behavior, but it helps you take a kind of step back and say, wow, what are all the other things that coincide with that remote learning that might be influencing parents, that influence children, influences those key interactions. And I think that Emily's point about uh, using this information to help teachers get ready for young children in the classroom is so important because there is a lot of pressure to, quote, catch up. But kids are really struggling, and the adults around them are struggling too. And so we want educators to be ready to manage some of these kinds of behaviors that might carry over into the classroom when kids return or as they go in and out, which is certainly something we're seeing now. After the break, what are educators doing to try to help students as they shift back and forth between online and in-person classroom formats? Stay with us. Every teacher and parent has been there before. A student with great potential just failed to turn in their big assignment. Now, doing well this semester just became a lot harder. If only you had the time a few days ago to check in and remind them what was coming due. That's where Boost helps thousands of students keep up and succeed. Boost is an outcomes-driven notification app. Boost gives students due date reminders, personalized nudges, and positive feedback straight to their phones. Backed by peer-reviewed and published research, Boost is proven to help students earn higher grades and pass more classes, all while saving teachers and parents time. Boost sends students intelligent reminders about assignments that are upcoming but not yet turned in. And Boost is already used by students in middle schools, high schools, colleges, and grad schools to succeed every day. Boost is completely free for schools to activate and free for students and parents to download and use in the Apple or Android app stores. Visit www.boost.education to make sure your students never miss an assignment again. Now back to the episode. It, it, it makes me think, as, as a disruption happens and people return to the classroom after an online period, the kids are not all right. Like, it, it, you have to sort of think that, that thought maybe of, like, they, there's something that needs to be um, looked at it and step back toward the SEL, the social emotional components, mm-hmm. um, in addition to the curriculum. Definitely. And we do have, you know, we certainly have lots of information from other work and other times about the kinds of things that parents can do, that teachers can do uh, to support kids who are struggling. 
So we have a lot at, at our disposal that we can use. Yeah, that is, I have a um, I have two kids, and one of them is seven, so a first grader, and went through kindergarten on the screen. Um, in a you know, and it so I feel a personal um, connection um, to to the scenarios that you're exploring in your research. I think you're pointing to something that we think a lot about, that these surprisings are, these findings are not surprising for anyone uh, who has young children, who works with young children. But in some sense, they're incredibly validating. Like, of course, we're seeing this and we're feeling this. This has been really hard. And it's okay to pause and think about the whole child and think about how we can support children and their caregivers to navigate the uncertainty and instability that we've all felt through this period. That, that, and it's true. It is kind of feels like, okay, it's not, al- we're not alone in this. Right. In this it's in not this just struggle. in my family. <laughs> we've all been right? so or isolated setting, yeah. from each other that it's been really hard. Um, I think that's a good point Emily is making because it, it leads to another another thing which is important to know. And that is um, everybody is struggling in one way or another. And we have tools uh, that we know help children and adults bounce back. So, so with support, children can navigate uh, these kinds of fluctuations. Yeah, what are some of the tools? That comes. <laughs> so you mentioned one, which is uh, all of the lessons that we've, that we've uh, gotten from social and emotional learning. Um, and some of those are very, they may seem really basic, but they, but in their basicness, they're profound, which is, you know, taking time to let kids talk about what's happening with them. You know, when, when adults are stressed, sometimes what you need is just a moment to step, step back and share how you're feeling. You don't necessarily need the answer or the solution, but just an opportunity to say like, this, this is what is happening with me and this is how I feel. And I want to share it with you. Young children may be less skilled at, uh, sophisticated descriptions of their emotions, but they need to share too. And, and whatever they are sharing is okay. And they need a chance to say it and someone to listen. And that often makes a big difference. So just opening up the space for a conversation about how everyone's feeling and what's a struggle and what's not. That's one thing. The second thing is, um, when things are feel unstable and like they're fluctuating, one really effective strategy is to build routines and predictability into the system where you can. So, so even for all of us, uh, it feels completely out of control and unpredictable all the time. We can make these little micro routines in our life and in our day that support children with some predictability. So even if we're going to be remote today, we are always going to do A, B, and C together. And then we're going to do whatever learning we do on this computer. And then we're going to do uh, C, D, and E, and F together. We do that every time, you know, that kind of thing, which really sets up some sense of predictability for young kids. I'll turn it to Emily. Others, Emily. I think that what you allude to are also can happen concurrently. So thinking about predictability and stability and routine and voicing in space for uh, emotions. And so sometimes creating fun pauses or breaks in the day where children and families are spending time together, these sorts of unstructured time 
can be moments when children feel really comfortable voicing their concerns. So things like taking a family walk or playing a game um, create space for children to voice their their feelings uh, and feel more comfortable doing so. I think we can't also underscore how important it is to support adults and to recognize that adult well-being is foundational to child well-being. And so we often think of the airplane analogy of like you have to put your oxygen mask on first before you put your child's mask on. And I think we haven't been doing a very good job of that during the pandemic and recognizing the burden that parents and particularly working parents are facing as they're navigating this this time. And so as a broader society, we can think about ways to support adult caregivers uh, through a variety of means, uh, through being supportive employers, by creating space and supports virtually for families with children. There's lots that we can be doing better to support working families and parents. You know, it seems like both of you have a focus, um, not just in this piece of research, but in your broader work, on the question of what makes high-quality early learning. And one of the things that, you know, I think that's a really interesting question, but then there is that thing of like, well, why is that such a hard question? You know, what, what makes high quality early learning? What is, what is it about that question that is a, a, a more challenging question than people might even realize? Um, I maybe start with, with Stephanie this time. Um, I, I don't know why <laughs> that continues to bedevil us. Um, I think that we, that, uh, we maybe get a bit caught in how complex we think it is when in fact we have um, some very basic ideas that are supported by research about what high quality means. And, and that doesn't mean only one thing, only one way can represent high quality. It just means that, that, that quality has a couple of uh, pillars. And those pillars can be enacted and can exist in different ways in different settings. And we, we certainly know that we have a very, a broad and varied early childhood system and, uh, that we see quality experiences and quality in all of those different kinds of settings. And really at the core is something that we've been talking about this whole time, which is, the, the nature of the relationships and interactions mm-hmm. between children and the adults who care for them. And, and that, that's true. Certainly we all know that's true in families. It's true in early learning settings as well. And that's kind of the foundation that sets up all of those stimulating, rich interactions around materials and specific content that happen in those settings. It's what sets up all of the interactions between children and other children in those settings. So it's really the foundation and you can see it in lots of different ways in lots of different places. Emily, do you want to add anything about the quality? Yeah, I would agree that I actually think that high quality in early education is not complicated. And we do have a sense that from developmental science and from decades of research that the interactions and activities and experiences that children have on a day-to-day basis in early education and care settings are foundational to their healthy development and their well-being. But what, where we get marred down is trying to identify and measure specific aspects of those experiences and interactions. Uh, and we still haven't hit the nail on the head on how you best do that. And so I think that that's work that we're thinking a lot about is how do you 
capture high quality developmentally supportive interactions across the range of settings where young children spend their time today, whether informal care with a, with a grandparent, family childcare in somebody's home, or in a school-based setting? Uh, and how do you capture it across the diversity of populations that participate in early ed- education and care today? Um, and so that's work that we're currently we're currently engaged in through the early learning study at Harvard, and and we continue to think about. So stay tuned. Yeah, I, I talked. I got to talk with um, on a recent episode um, Elliot Haspel, who is an author who's you know wrote wrote a book um, crawling behind America's childcare crisis and how to fix it. And we t- we did talk about the challenges of these of some of the policy work in this area. And obviously, there's you know talk of national changes to early learning um, support. Um, and, and it does seem to, to be that your piece of the puzzle is trying to say like, what are measurable, measurable ways of, of identifying what is high quality? Yeah. I mean, um, it's so, this is potentially such an exciting time for, for early learning and early education. And there, there seem to be, although who knows right now, there seem to be a real opportunity to expand opportunities and make them available to way more children. The key uh, to the effectiveness of those opportunities is that it is high quality. And so, so the two are always going together, the kind of the expansion of opportunity, but it has to be of high quality. So the quality question is, is just always there. And to get to that, even if we know what the sort of basic components are, uh, we need to figure out how we can capture and represent those components in ways that are actionable so that we can use that information to do things in a specific and clear way in different settings to support the adults who are in charge of those settings. So, so our work is about that kind of, I don't know, conundrum opportunity set of tasks. It's really hard. Yeah. It's really hard to regulate interactions like, put a policy in place and say, you must have higher quality interactions. And so we often default to regulating structures and settings that we think are meant to promote high quality processes, things like increasing teacher education levels or reducing child-teacher ratios. But you can imagine that you could have a teacher with a bachelor's degree who's providing really rich interactions for children and teachers with a bachelor's degree who's not. And that might not be one, there's not one ingredient to high quality experiences and interactions in a setting. And so part of our work is thinking about how do we measure the interactions and think about creating structures that are more proximal to the interactions and the processes that children are experiencing on a daily basis so that we can build policies that are more closely aligned to what quality actually is. Are there other takeaways from your broader study? Is there, are there some other takeaways you're, you're learning? I mean, Emily touched on, on one, which is that it's really important to think about the system as a whole. Um, the kind of history of research in this area has, has in some ways quite narrowly focused on only certain types of settings and experiences when we know that the system comprises both, as Emily said, those sort of more traditional formal settings, classroom-based settings, and those more informal, maybe family child care. Like grandma settings, taking or, care of the kids. Like grandma yeah. taking care of the kid or, or someone down the street who has a small group of children and caring for them in, in their home. And, and, and that system, uh, is, as we learned in the pandemic, 
all facets of that system are really important. We know that family child care providers stepped in when a lot of places shut down and had far fewer supports because they weren't part of necessarily part of a kind of regulated system. And, and, but they were really instrumental in helping families navigate the tremendous disruption that happened at the beginning of the pandemic. So, so in, our work is really about making sure that we're paying attention to and understanding all of the facets of that system and addressing all of the specific issues that Emily raised inside of that sort of large, multifaceted system. Before the pandemic started, we had observed quality in over 1,300 settings across Massachusetts in that constellation of different types of care. And I think we had gotten 10 settings done right before the pandemic started. But what we learned from those data collected before the pandemic was that there are high quality settings across every type of care imaginable, and there are low quality settings across every type of care imaginable. So it's not like one type of care is necessarily the ticket to getting a high quality system. So it shouldn't be that we necessarily hang our hat on creating all school-based programs. And as Stephanie mentioned, families also need and rely on the full diversity of care options. School-based care, for example, tends to only go to three o'clock. And so if you're a working family, having an alternative option that goes until the end of the workday can be really powerful. and so one of our key it was, take- it was crucial for me. Yeah, <laughs> for one sure. of our key takeaways was that care type does not equate to high quality interactions and experiences in programs, and that there is a lot of variation in the experiences that individual children are having within programs, and that children are having across different programs as well. What are some? I mean, we're we're nearly at time, and this has been such. I, I we could clearly go on, um, but is there are there other um, are there other points you, you, either one of you want to highlight um, that maybe we haven't touched on or that, that relate to, to these big themes here? Another thing I just mentioned is the early educator side of the story that we have talked very little about on our call today. Uh, throughout the pandemic, we've continued to survey the early educators and the programs that supported our children when they were three and four. So although our kids moved on to elementary school, we went back to their early educators and to their programs and wanted to get a sense of how they were doing, what was happening for them, how were they navigating the pandemic. And I think that there are two big takeaways. One, it's been really hard, and it's been particularly hard for the sorts of caregivers who don't have access to state funding, federal funding to navigate the pandemic. So family child care workers in particular were very likely to have their pay cut, uh, to not have access to testing supports or other sorts of health and safety resources. But the other side, the flip side of this coin, is that we just observed how completely devoted and committed this workforce is to young children and families. Nobody is in this work for the money or the glory or the fame. But we continued to see early educators, despite not having the resources financially or materially to navigate this pandemic, sticking around and standing up for families in really big ways. Uh, So as like a small example of that, at the beginning of the pandemic, we had teachers reporting that they were writing postcards to children on on a daily basis, that they were driving around dropping off diapers to families they thought might need it, that they were sending photos to kids of the classroom to remind them what it was like. And so I think from our perspective, we think it's really important to 
elevate those voices of educators who are doing all of this work for not just families and children, but for our broader society to keep it running uh, and think about ways that we can continue to support them and support them better going forward. That, that is such a, a vivid example. And um, I'm sure some of the, what you're saying is those are still happening. These educators are absolutely still as all of us are weary uh, of this pandemic. Yep. Well, we look forward to seeing what what's next from your research. Um, thank you both for, for taking the time today. And thank you. Thank you for having us. Yes. Thank you so much, Jeff. This has been the Ed Surge podcast. Every week we bring you episodes like this one. There are plenty of ways that you can keep up with us. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the Ed Surge podcast newsletter where you can get bonus material about every topic we dive into. This week, that includes links to the research mentioned in the episode and a viral video of a student melting down during the pandemic and how his parent used humor to, uh, to deal with that. There are plenty of ways that you can keep up with us. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the Ed Surge podcast newsletter where you can get bonus material about every topic we dive into. This week, that includes links to the research mentioned in the episode and a viral video of a student melting down during the pandemic and how his mom used humor to roll with that. And of course, we hope you will tell a friend about the Ed Surge podcast or leave us a rating or a review wherever you listen. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young. And you can find me on Twitter at J.R. Young. I had help this episode from Ed Surge's Emily Tate. Music on this installment was by Mont Plessier. We'll be back next week with more about the future of learning. Thanks for listening.